Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullick. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullick. We've been away for two weeks, but we are back to talk about some playoff trends and some other fun stuff. How, how you doing today, Rachel? I'm good. We're back in business. I mean, I guess that Easter break wasn't really planned, but I think like kind of good to get some family time. That's definitely important. It's funny. I know most podcasts really pick up during playoffs, but I feel like I got so busy with other stuff and then life got in the way that I needed to take a week off. So not the best probably for business and clicks and, you know, listens and everything, but just I feel like mental health wise, I kind of needed that break and I'm ready to to get back now and, and really dive into some fun hockey stuff. Oh, me too. I'm so excited for today's show. So what are we uh, what are we hitting there, Ian? So uh, I think the biggest question someone asked you last week was uh, why are scoring chances uh, more important than Corsi or possession? And it, or are they more important than Corsi or possession? I know there's kind of the, the debate right now online that, you know, shots really matter. You know, you'll see people citing Corsi all the time, but then you'll see other stuff like, high danger scoring chances or scoring chances or something like expected goals. So I thought it would be fun to maybe dive into why scoring chances matter, why coaches are looking at it, and whether or not they're more important than something like Corsi, which is just shots at the end of the day. Exactly. And I think that wasn't the only thing people were yelling about in regards to quote unquote analytics on Twitter in the past two weeks. I'm not sure how many of our listeners have seen, I guess, the Pierre Maguire quote that's going around that then led to the analytics debate that seems to happen every year and it will happen again in the summer and I'll never forget the Julius Honka debate so can't wait for whatever player is yelled about this summer and I feel like every time the Carolina Hurricanes win or lose there's a big war that happens on Twitter so it's always which is dumb (laughs) like they're a hockey team and you know what they're doing actually before we get into this the the little speeches that they show of Brenda Moore kind of either after the game or before the game or at intermission they're kind of letting fans in it looks amazing like that's such a cool way to give your fans access I feel like Carolina as a whole is just kind of really fun this year you know a lot of the stuff they're doing is making their fans more engaged and then you you see that the the team I think it was in game six against Washington that's one of the loudest crowds I've ever seen in a in a playoff like you know elimination game scenario so I can't get enough of what Carolina's doing. I hope they go on a deep run here because I like the way they play hockey. Yeah, and if there's any Canes fans listening, if any of you can start a Viking clap mid-play, that would be unbelievable for the atmosphere. I'd be so in on that. If you could somehow get a drum in there, I know that they allow it for soccer games and they allow it for hockey games in Europe, but if you can get a Viking clap going mid-play... I think that'd be amazing for the atmosphere because it would just, you'd have to notice it. You, it would make an impact. We're getting off track here. I feel like uh, hockey Twitter's official team is the Carolina Hurricanes this year. So if we, if we keep talking about them, we're going to get way too carried away. So let's get back to scoring chances in Corsi. What are your thoughts to, to just start things off here? I just like, for me, Corsi kind of came in and that was like the new fresh stat, but now we have things like scoring chances and, Scoring chances broken down into low, medium, and high danger. And you're kind of seeing now that the teams in the playoffs that are winning aren't necessarily the teams that are winning the Corsi battle. So, like, Carolina basically wins the Corsi battle every game because they just out 
the possession the other team, but they're not necessarily winning every game. So it's kind of, yes, it is important to possess the puck, but teams who actually are generating more scoring chances, specifically high danger ones, are actually the teams that are winning. So kind of interested to talk about kind of how Corsi has changed from being the really the go-to telltale stat to now scoring chances. So I know that when you talk about scoring chances, you refer to high danger chances. And whenever I use the word scoring chances when I'm writing, it refers to both high danger chances and the medium danger places. So basically, what I like to think of when I'm thinking of scoring chances is picture the ice right now, the the dots in the offensive zone, from the dots to the top of the circle and in. So that basically creates that home plate shape that you've probably seen on TSN before. That's the overall scoring chances shape. And then if you make a small little diamond kind of right in front of the net from, I don't even know how you describe the high danger area. What would you call it? You essentially, you take uh, the net front and you put it out to where the hash marks meet the start of the circle, essentially. And then you bring those two points together and they meet at kind of the ring at line or the top of the circle in the middle. So... Like, what, 10 feet in front of the net? Like, basically really in tight is the high danger area. I would say, you know what, we'll post a picture of what Sport Logic defines as the high danger scoring area so that you guys can kind of get an idea of what it is. But it's kind of like a, a diamond shape and not the diamond shape that you would think about. I'm talking as in a diamond that your girlfriend or wife probably has on her finger. That type of shape. Or the gem thing that you get in your iPhone emoji. It's more that shape than it is an actual four-sided diamond. So there are pros and cons to using either of those metrics. So high danger chances, like you said, the the team that gets more of them tends to win that game. I mean, that's really where you want to be shooting from. If, if we're talking about something like expected goals, your chances of scoring from in tight will have a very high expected goals number. I mean, you'll score like 20, 25% of the shots that come from that area. Whereas shots from a bit deeper out, let's say from just inside the top of the circle, it doesn't have as high of a chance of going in, but still much higher than a shot from, say, the blue line or a shot from the boards. Low danger shots, shots from really outside any of those areas, shots from the blue line, shots from the boards, shots from the goal line, have very little chance of going in. I think the average at save percentage is like 97% on low danger chances. Yeah, you have a 3%. So according to Sport Logic. You have, if you're shooting from the inner slot, which is the high danger scoring area, the shooting percentage over the past two seasons has been 22%. That sounds right. And in the home plate area that you're talking about that isn't the inner slot, it drops to 5.6%. So it's considerable. And that's the medium danger area that we're talking about. Yeah. And outside of that, so now you're talking about above the ring at line and then you have your goal line or you're behind the net you're looking 2 to 3% chance. So you're like there's a significant advantage to getting your shots from the inner slot and 48% of the goals in the last 2 seasons have come from the inner slot. Yep, so that sounds like the area you want to get pucks to. Like you well, want to be shooting. Yeah. <laughs> Half the goals are coming from there. I mean, that's a pretty significant margin. And you know what's funny is that even when you're taking shots from outside that area, you're probably hoping that 
you end up getting a shot from that area because you're hoping for a deflection or a rebound. You're hoping that somehow the puck finds its way into that area where you can actually score it from. Because I think most teams know that you're not beating an NHL goaltender from distance anymore. Exactly. And you can see in the save percentages, the save percentages in the inner slot are significantly lower. There are some goaltenders who on inner slot shots, specifically on the power play, have a 740 or even lower just because the quality of shot and the quality of save that's required to keep the puck out from such an in tight distance where it's more reactionary and positional than anything else is like you don't stop the puck as much when you're there think of mark shifley open in the slot on winnipeg's power play and he's getting a clean one-timer and a goalie who's not square to the puck like yeah that's a very difficult save Exactly. And even there's only a few players that are above that 5.6 margin that are worth pointing out. Um, I think one of them is relatively obvious and he plays in Washington. His name is Alex Ovechkin. So what are you referring to when you when you're talking about that? So the the home plate part of the rink. So we talked about how in the inner slot, there's a 22 percent chance that you score. But if you're still in the slot home plate area, it's 5.6 percent. Ovechkin happens to shoot a little bit higher than that. Yeah, than other humans. I mean, there are other guys too, like David Pasternak, uh, Steven Stamkos, Kucherov. There are guys who can consistently outperform their expected shooting percentage from those areas. And they raise the percentage up. So if you remove some of the guys that shoot like 10% from that area, you're looking at it's now dropping into the low fives, if not fours in terms of scoring from those areas. So you really want to get your chances as close to the net as possible, as dead on as possible. So if you can get a shot from between the hash marks, it's a great shot. So basically, the elite players in the NHL can score from the top of the circle, 5-on-5 five and, five and on the power play. We're talking Ovechkin, Stamkos, Kucherov, Lane, Matthews, etc. But then... Every other NHL player who isn't an elite shooter is probably shooting below 5% from those areas. Exactly. And then I was curious, um, if you look at this year's playoffs, the teams that are winning the scoring chance battles just on a game-by-game basis, are they also winning those games? So let's say like Team X wins the scoring chance battle and the high-danger scoring chance battle specifically. Are they winning those games? So yeah, no, it's a fair point. I mean, when you look at teams like Boston or Columbus, the team who has the most high-danger chances in those games have, have won those games. You look at Carolina, every game except one, the team with the most high-danger chances won those games. And they're beating the New York Islanders because New York Islanders have had a lot of posts, had bad goaltending, but... Again, Carolina's had the more high-danger chances in those games, and they've won those games. If you look at the Avs against Calgary, they ran over Calgary in high-danger chances in games 2, 3, 4, and 5. You look at San Jose, Colorado, the team with the most high-danger chances are winning. I think this is a very clear indicator of something that I think is descriptive, but not necessarily predictive. And I'll tell you why I I think that, because if you're looking at a team that gets the most chances from in tight, whether it's nice rebound chances or... Uh, you know, deflections in front, those have a very high percentage of going in, and that's going to result in goals, which get you wins. But there's been a lot of interesting research that shows that rebounds are not very repeatable. So, for example, if you generate a high number of rebounds in one game, you're not necessarily very likely to generate many rebounds in the next game. And very similar thing happens with deflections. Sometimes it can be a bit random. Obviously, you have some players like Joe Pavelski or uh, JVR who are much better than other players in those regards, but 
from a game-to-game basis, I think it's much harder to predict which team's going to win the high-danger scoring chance battle. And that's why I think something like Corsi or something like even all scoring chances, both high-danger and medium-danger, they tend to be much more predictive than the high-danger chances. And I think it's just because there's so few in a particular game. Like, for example, how many high-danger chances are there in the average game? Like, like five or six per team? I'm not sure what the number is. So, Sport Logic classifies the high-danger chances basically any shot from the inner slot. So, and they obviously, Sport Logic tracks more things than you could possibly imagine with their algorithm. And they track things like passes to the inner slot, shots from the inner slot. And so... The really, really good teams, I think, generate 16 shots from the inner slot, 5 on 5 per 60. Now, that's shot attempts, which includes blocks, correct? No, no, no. I'm talking actual shots on goal. Whoa. That seems high. Per 60, though, not um, per game. I don't know what it is per game off the top of my head, but I know when I was just kind of doing some research and asking um, some questions... If you can get basically above 10 shots on goal at 5-on-5 per 60 from the inner slot, you're cooking because that's expected goals-wise between 2 and 3. And now that's something that some teams are much better at generating than others. I know, for example, the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs are a team that whose shot quantity has been a bit of a concern over the last few years, but I know their shot quality from the inner slot is very good. And you look at a guy like... Austin Matthews, he's able to generate those like crazy. Yeah, the top teams for shot quality would be the obvious in Tampa Bay because they just do whatever they want, wherever they want in the offensive zone. Except in round one of the playoffs. Except in round one, yeah. Uh, The Leafs have very good shot quality. The Panthers actually had very good shot quality, especially on the power play. Um, They just didn't have a very good shooting percentage. Um, So there's some teams in there. Buffalo actually had a period of time where they had excellent shot quality. So I think that's also a different discussion in terms of like Carolina is one of those teams that generates a lot of shots, but how many of those shots are actually high quality? Whereas would you rather generate 30 shots and five of them are high quality, or would you rather generate 22 shots and 11 of them are high quality? Like the percentage. This is where we get in the debate of what is a high-quality shot. Are we simply talking about location, or are we including the idea of shots off the rush having much more value, uh, passes, east-west movement in the offensive zone? Even if the shot's from not the greatest location, if you can get an east-west pass in the offensive zone, that really increases your chances of scoring. So it's not as black and white as a lot of people would like it to be. So Right. There's lots of ways that you can generate. I just think that the trend of getting the puck to the middle of the ice at the net front it's very difficult to ignore because teams who were in the top 10 of inner slot shots per 60 all made the playoffs. Interesting. And I know um, preventing shot quality defensively tends to be something that coaches talk all the time about. For example, you know, oh, it's okay. We'll keep shots to the outside. We'll keep shots to the outside. The Randy Carlisle years in Toronto, I know as as a Leafs fan, that that was something we were told but you could look it up in the numbers and it wasn't true. They were also getting killed in in scoring chances, expected goals, high danger chances. They were just, they were getting obliterated. An interesting team over the last few years for me is the Minnesota Wild, just because every team in the NHL has really struggled to limit shot quality to a significant degree, but the Minnesota Wild seem to be playing a different game and they're just limiting shot quality like crazy. Like they rarely give up 
any high danger chances from the slot at five on five. I'm not sure if it's because of guys like Miko Koivu, Ryan Suter, and uh, Jared Spurgeon. I'm not sure if it's the system. I'm not sure what it is exactly, but for whatever reason, that's been one of the dominant teams when it comes to shot quality, defensively speaking. Are there any others that come to mind, or does Minnesota do anything in particular that you think would lead to that? Just because I've always found them to be an interesting case study of, wow, how the hell are they doing this one thing that no other team can seem to figure out? I think with Minnesota, it's just uh, a dedication to we'll allow the shots from the outside. So we'll be we'll play compact so that we keep them. We'll, we'll allow them to skate circles around the outside and take their shots from the outside. But every single lane to the inner slot or that allows a Royal Road pass, which is the East-West pass, is cut off. So they're happy to allow your shot from the point or your one-timer from the point. They're not allowing your East-West pass. They're not allowing your goal line pass to the net front. So they're very particular in the type of shot that they allow because they take away the passing lanes. So instead of moving your stick as a defender to take away a different lane based on a player's eyes, the Wild have committed to just saying, our stick... Player X's stick is in this lane, Player the other player's stick is in this lane, and I know that my teammate's stick is going to be in lane X, and therefore we're only giving shots from the outside. It's very rare that they give up the, the high, high-quality one-timer in the slot just because the dedication to keeping your stick in that lane and the discipline to know that your teammates are also going to do the same has an impact on how you can defend and keep players to the outside because your instinct would tell you, oh, I got to move my stick into that lane. So to have that discipline to say, nope, my stick needs to stay in the lane that protects the middle of the ice is something that the Wild do better than any other team in the National Hockey League. I wonder how much not taking chances offensively helps their defensive side of the game. Because I think, for example, if you're in the offensive zone, you got a cycle going. I feel like Minnesota is one of the teams that really makes sure that they have a third forward back, even if maybe it's a situation where that third forward should be pinching the offensive zone and try to create a chance. They make sure so diligently that they always have three players back, and there's always a, a third forward back on the back check. There's always a third forward in the neutral zone. They're wingers. You'll never see them blow the zone on the breakout trying to create an odd man rush. They're very diligent in the way that they take away passing lanes in the defensive zone. So, like you said, I think that really helps them defensively. But I think there's an element of conservatism to their approach, and maybe it costs them offensively, and that's why we don't see them generate as much at the other end. I think there's absolutely an element that costs them offensively. They also don't have the offensive superstar that power that other teams have, like a Kuznetsov or a McKinnon type of offense. But I think you're right in that they always have somebody high. They're very disciplined in, in how they forecheck and how they take care of the puck. They When they turn it over, not only is there already a third forward who's back, the other two are coming back through the neutral zone, right up the middle, taking away lanes. So it's very difficult to do anything. It's It doesn't quite hit the level of like Jacques Lemaire, New Jersey Devils hockey of the 90s and the early 2000s, but if there were ever a team that was sort of modeling their game to be modern-day Jacques Lemaire trap hockey, it's the Minnesota Wild. And that's why watching their games are more fun than watching paint dry, man. They're just fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> it's effective, though. Like It's pretty hard to argue. I mean, like, with the exception of this season, but I think there were other things at bay for them this season. Um, but yeah, that's I think that's what sets the Wild apart in terms of the fact that they don't give up those chances. 
but they also don't take them. So when you have a team that's high event, so if you look at the St. Louis-Dallas series right now, that's the only series where if you win the scoring chance battle and by extension the high danger scoring chance battle, you aren't necessarily winning the game, and that's because Ben Bishop and Jordan Bennington are playing like crazy hockey right now. I know it was 4-3 the other night, but they're making saves that they shouldn't be making necessarily, and I think that that really helped St. Louis in Winnipeg as well in the first couple of games. It definitely helped Dallas in their series against Nashville. Um, So that's sort of the anomaly series, and I think that that series is an anomaly kind of in general, just with the way that those two teams play. So getting back to descriptive versus predictive, let me just explain what I was meaning. Because, for example, the team that scores more goals always wins the game. So goals are an extremely descriptive stat are you sure about that i thought it was grit and intensity that's very fair that's a good point yeah that might, we need that the grit chart out there we'll need to pull that one out i'm i've i've i'm ian graf so i'll see what i can do on that one but when it comes to being descriptive yeah goals describe what happened and if you're looking to predict future performance you can look at something like Corsi or shots those will actually be a much better predictor of who's going to win in the future than who scored more goals in the past so Corsi is a good predictive stat whereas goals are a descriptive stat of what happened. I feel like high-danger scoring chances fall more into the descriptive area in that if you look at which team generated the most high-danger chances, you know, from the inner slot, from right and tight, yeah, that team's probably going to win the game more often than not. And if they don't, it probably means that the other team's goaltender had a really good night. But if we're looking to predict results in the future while taking shot quality into account, I tend to prefer something like expected goals because... The, the, the scary part about using something like high danger chances or shots from the inner slot is that you're basically just excluding a ton of data from that game. You're saying, okay, yeah, 60 shots were taken on this game. Let's say 60 shot attempts, but we're going to ignore everything that didn't come within 10 feet. So we're only going to look at 11 shots from this game. Whereas something like expected goals, it weights all of those shots. So yeah, if it's a shot came from the blue line, okay, yeah, that's only a 2% shot. We don't care about it, but we're going to give that 0.02 expected goals because that had a 2% chance of going in. And then this 8% shot from distance had a a small chance of going in. And then this 11% shot. And guess what? Not all shots from the high danger chance area are created equal. Some of them are, you know, 20% chances. Some of them are like 30 or 40% chances if they're from really in tight, especially if there was a, a pass beforehand that came through the middle of the slot. So... I think that the future of hockey is expected goals, especially once we get some player tracking and maybe some passing data involved. I feel like that's really going to help us. Passing data is going to be absolutely key because you'll be able to see what happened prior. And Ryan Stimson does this kind of work. But passing data is going to be key because, like you said, not all shots are created equal. So there's going to be a shot from just in tight is let's say 30%. But if it's got an immediate pass across because it's a two on one and it's a rush chance, it's probably 40%. If it's a deflection from that close, it's probably closer to 50. And rebounds are super high chances. It's funny from playing around on money puck. I always like looking at which goals or which shots are seen as extremely high likelihood of going in. And I just come to realize that, wow, rebounds improve your chances of scoring dramatically. If you take a shot from a certain area and it's a non-rebound shot, maybe it has, let's say, an 8% chance of going in. All of a sudden, that same shot is a rebound shot, and it's like a 60% chance of going in. You're going, wait, wait, what the hell? And it makes sense when you think about it. Goaltenders off of a rebound are out of position. And I used to play goaltender. I hated rebounds. Rebounds were the worst. I wanted my defenseman to clear every single rebound that I had. 
And this is the hard part with descriptive versus predictive, because even with something like expected goals, which I think is going to have a lot of predictive value, rebounds tend to be a bit of a shit show. As, as, as much as we want to say that some goaltenders are better at others at uh, rebound control and at, you know deflecting pucks into the corner and deflecting pucks out at the end of long shifts. It's hard to predict because it all depends. Like I was talking to a few goaltenders about this um, that do this kind of analysis, and they were saying if a goaltender is just not feeling it that night, the rebound control could be all over the place. Like A perfect example is Freddie Anderson. When he's like calm and collected, everything kind of sticks to him. But then when he's kind of scrambly, it's a a hay it's a heyday. So you can't really predict the rebounds. I I definitely agree with you on that one because you just never know how the goalie's going to be feeling. And with the number of screens and random bounces and stuff like that, a lot of this is hard to predict. I mean, we're talking about a, a sport where the best team often doesn't win when it comes to like we're not basketball when it comes to hockey. You know, it's much closer to baseball on a game by game basis of a lot of random stuff happening. So. It's tough. It's one of those skills that definitely exists as a goaltender. You can be better than someone else at rebound control, but hockey's not the kind of sport that's going to let that talent win out in, in terms of the numbers, even across a large sample, just because of the randomness. That's kind of the same problem we have with on-ice shooting percentage uh, defensively. On-ice save percentage, I should say. If you have a defenseman who's much better at limiting shot quality than another defenseman, yeah, that matters, but it's not going to show up in the on ice save percentage numbers, even across a large sample, just because save percentage as a whole is so volatile and so random. And there's so many crazy swings from game to game that you never want to use on ice save percentage as a measure of a defenseman's shot quality. So it's, it's one of those tricky things like rebound control definitely exists. And some, uh, some goaltenders are better than others at preventing rebounds. But that's probably not going to show up in the actual rebound numbers because hockey as a whole is just kind of a crazy sport at the end of the day. <laughs> exactly. And there's so many different expected goal metrics. I think with player tracking coming and whatnot, like different teams are now just have different expected goals. And really the only ones that teams use are either their own or sport logics. And so as soon as I feel like we need to come to an agreement where like there's a consistent expected goals formula model that everyone uses because like you can go to one website and see expected goals is x and you could go to another website and see that it's y so they think there needs to be some consistency and i think that that isn't going to happen until there is a more influx of data because you just different people are building their models differently so they're in order to even get to a place where it's predictive or descriptive it needs to be the same across the board yeah, that's one of the tricky things, especially if you're not familiar with how they work. You, it can be very confusing. It can make you think, oh, you know, how, can, how much can these things really matter if they disagree on things? Well, no, they, they do have value. It's just some shots are, are weird and come from behind the net. And, you know, it's, uh, one model will value that differently than another model. So it's, it's always tricky with these kind of statistical algorithms when it comes to trying to break down the game because it's a very uh, complex process that goes into making them. But at the end of the day, it can spit out some very useful information. So I, whenever I'm writing about stuff like a, an RAPM model, like Evolving Wilds, or Money Pucks Expected Goals model, I try my best to explain it in a way that makes sense to people and helps you know, say, okay, here's how it arrived at that number. But at the end of the day, not everyone's going to understand how the models work. And I feel like 
there's naturally going to be a bit of confusion when it comes to certain models disagreeing with others. The same kind of thing happens when you look at a war metric. You know, we all want all the war metrics to agree and think the exact same thing of certain players. But some war models are higher on a guy like Patrick Lonnie, who has incredible shooting talent, and other models despise him because of his inability to drive play at five on five. So I feel like as much as we want to agree on everything, the way that hockey works and just how complicated sports are in general, I'm not sure if we're ever going to get that full agreement. That's the tricky part here. Yeah, like we can't even have certain off-ice officials or people agree on what is and isn't a shot at this point. Like we have people tracking in some buildings where there's 90 shots a game. The Madison Square Garden guy doesn't have a clue what he's doing. That it's it's crazy how hard you have to adjust for the, <laughs> the, the it, all these expected goal models have adjustments based on uh, scorekeeper bias, and the Madison Square Garden one is like to the nth degree, just because it's crazy how often they'll inflate or deflate uh, scoring chances to help their team. Right. So until we until we don't have a hope in hell of getting a consistent expected goals model unless it's done by a machine as opposed to a person because we can't even agree on what a block shot is or what a turnover is or who wins a face-off like we need to get there first yeah so it's funny as much as i love what we have so far in the public realm like i like using stuff like money puck or uh manny's expected goal model there's a lot of cool stuff out there but when the scorekeeper mislabels a shot and it, it says that it's from the slot when we all know that it was from the top of the circle, guess what? That really changes the, the math and that changes the expected goal output. So we need a bit more reliable data before we can get there. But uh, yeah, I feel like we're nerding out a bit too much on scoring chances. Maybe we should get to some of the other topics here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say, let's say, let, let me ask you this. If you had to pick your predictive stat that you are going to present to your coach and say okay listen like this needs to be in our keys is it going to be we need to possess the puck so something like Corsi or is it going to be we need to win the expected goals model or the expected goals so ergo we need to have a more high quality chances or we need to have um more shots from this area when I'm talking to whether it's coaches or people who might not be as familiar with numbers, I tend to prefer using the word scoring chances. And by that, I refer to like all scoring chances, both from the inner slot and the outer slot, you know, to the top of the circle. I just feel like everyone can agree that, yeah, we want scoring chances. Scoring chances are good. But if it's someone who has a bit more of a background and understands how the, the numbers work, then, yeah, I, I love using expected goals. I feel like that's the best measure we have right now, and it's going to be the best measure we have in the future because of all the uh, variables it can take into account when it's trying to assess shot quality. So that's my personal favorite. But, again, I don't think there's anything wrong with using scoring chances if you're trying to explain the concept to someone. I think it's a very good entry point because I feel like Corsi's almost become a you know a, a divisive word right now that, that I don't think that's good for the growth of analytics so if we're going to use a different term let's talk about shots when we're talking about Corsi and let's talk about scoring chances when we're talking about expected goals I feel like that's a an easier way to help introduce people to the concept at least in my opinion right okay so let's uh we'll put a bow on that one and if you have any questions tweet at us let's get to the mailbag what have we got this week all right, uh, what would the game look like with icings moved back to your own blue line instead of center? Less icing, more dump-ins, would it be slower chip and chase? What would happen if, if we made that a rule? Um, I feel like it would give coaches the license. First of all, it would be easier to make line changes because now, like, let's say your defenseman's carrying it out. He doesn't have to get to the red line now. He only has to get to his blue line. And 
that encourages dumping the puck. And I mean, on this podcast, we are not encouraging Chip and Chase. Why not, Rachel? I'm of the mindset that the other, it's very difficult. I'm not going to say it's impossible. It's very difficult for the other team to score on you if you have the puck. So if you can execute a line change or just keep the puck in your possession, ergo don't dump the puck in because that's basically a glorified turnover, then you should do that. I think that keeping the puck in your possession while you change allows you to set up whatever kind of play you want to break into the other team's zone. I just, there's just so many benefits to possessing the puck that doing something like chip and chase where it essentially becomes like a 50-50 battle that you are depending on your player to win when you had the puck in the first place is just not a good way to go about doing things. I think we need to admit the fact that there are some situations where it's best to chip it in or, or you have to because, you know, yes. the, the other team's obviously defended well and the only way you're going to be able to get in is launching it in and getting your far side winger to go get it. But for the most part, if see it as a last resort, I think is the way that we tend to go about it. At least, like, let's say we were coaching a team. We would tell our players, you're never allowed to dump it in because we both know that they would dump it in when they needed to. But for the most part, if you can skate the puck into the offensive zone with possession, that's the best way to create a goal. Because I think most goals happen within, it's either within five seconds or within 10 seconds of a clean zone entry. Yes. That's when like 75% of goals are scored in the NHL. It's a crazy amount. And I think there's an important distinction here because I hate it when players on a delayed offside launch the puck back in the offensive zone. Oh my God, no, just regroup. Or if, you're, if your players are changing and you notice your players are changing, so you quickly get over center and launch into the offensive zone, why not take the puck, skate back around, reverse it to your defenseman, go off for your line change, and now your team has the puck when your line change is over as opposed to the other team having the puck for the line change. That's one of my biggest pet peeves because I understand the importance of a line change. You don't want to be stuck on the ice when you're exhausted. That's when nightmare shifts happen. Nightmare shifts happen in the defensive zone where you're just the other, you're getting cycled into oblivion and the other team either scores a goal or they draw a penalty. Something bad happens. You don't want to be stuck on the ice for long periods of time. But there are some players who really prioritize puck possession as they're changing lines, and some players clearly don't. And you can see the difference in the two. Like One guy's a skilled player who circles back, passes it off to his defenseman, hops off the ice. The other guy like darts for the red line, shoots it in, and then doesn't really care afterwards. And I, I tend to value the former much more than the latter. Agreed. And speaking of uh, rule changes, um, for the record, I think it would lead to more icings. Speaking of... Rule changes and icings. Um, delay of game. What about this? Let's say instead of... Because there's so many accidental puck over glass penalties and like sometimes the officials get it wrong and you know what, that happens. Instead of penalizing a player, why don't they treat it like an icing where the face-off's in your end and you can't change? I'd love that. I feel like that would just solve so many problems that everyone's had over the last little bit. It's like, and look, don't even worry if the puck went into the coach's bench or it went into the crowd. Like, you don't need to worry about the distinction of where the puck landed. Look, the puck went out of bounds. The other team shot it out. Like, they can't change. And now it's like, oh, they're just going to use it to catch a breath. Well, no, trust me, they won't because I've seen teams on, on nightmare shifts and the look on their face when they accidentally ice it is, is it's hilarious. So... Trust me, like you're not going to get anyone intentionally launching pucks over the glass just because you've changed it from a penalty to a now you can't change. I feel like the intended result is going to be the same. You're not going to have people launching the puck over the uh, over the glass to to help buy themselves some time. 
And you're not going to end up with some of these frustrating situations. Or was it a penalty? Was it not a penalty? Oh, my God, this is an objective penalty that refs had to call, but they, they let that crazy slashing penalty go. So Or they didn't give Essa Lindell six minutes for three different embellishing <laughs> embellishment issues within about 10 seconds. I can't even believe that I saw that. I'm like, what is happening? It came here? across my timeline. I was just like, well, I don't even know what I'm looking at anymore. <laughs> yeah, like I think, honestly, like, it would probably be better if they just went to that because at the end of the day, the time it takes the player to skate over to the penalty box for the ref to call the penalty, the penalty to go up on the clock, you've already like you're delaying the game even more. Just Kate, face off, you're not allowed to change. Also, Duh. the huddle of four officials where it takes them like two minutes to make the call. <laughs> yeah, like really not necessary, guys. Also, uh, unintended uh, consequence, I think, would be a good one, is that if you stop calling that penalty, I think it would force you to call other actual real infractions, which I'd like to see. Would it op- open up the game more? Ex- agreed. I mean, maybe this is just me, but I'd love to see more of a crackdown on interference and more cross like... Cross-checking? Well, cross-checking is definitely a good one, but I'm just talking about, like, when you chip the puck past a defenseman and he intentionally gets in your way for, like, two seconds, and he does Tara? it... Like, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. He doesn't grab you. He doesn't, like, body you into the boards, but he gets in your way very obviously and isn't making a play on the puck. I'd like to see that called as interference because then you're giving the advantage to the speedier, more skilled player, and you're not giving the advantage to the slower guy who just has to grab onto you. So, I don't know. I feel like that's how the game evolved from uh, the, the lockout in 2004. They started really, you know, getting rid of the obstruction hooking, obstruction uh, holding and stuff like that. If you prevent slower guys from impeding speedier guys on a dump in, I feel like it would lead to a faster game. So get rid of the puck over glass for my money and call more interference. That's what I'd like to see. All righty. Here's another question. And I don't know if everyone's aware, but Ian has his own Leafs Geeks podcast where he went into much more depth on the Maple Leafs coaching staff. But I had someone ask me, what impact did the Kadri suspension have on the coaching staff's ability to deploy their players? And I think this is a broader conversation. If you have a star player who's suspended, a.k.a. Nikita Kucherov got suspended in Tampa Bay. Joe Thornton missed a game for San Jose. Exactly. What impact does that have on your coach's ability to roll the lines, to have matchups, to move players around? Mike Babcock talked about it, but just curious sort of what your thoughts are. on. Obviously, we can talk about the Kadri suspension in terms of the impact that it had in the Leafs organization because that's a a bigger sample size than joe thornton's one game it's funny because i'm of two minds on this part of me looks at it the way someone like dom lucian would and says that while hockey is not a sport like basketball where taking one player out of the lineup is going to drastically alter their chances of winning you know like taking nazim kadri out of toronto's lineup might have hurt their chances of winning by two or three percent that's just a guess but i feel like dom's model would say something like that but at the end of the day this is still very much a coin flip you know and Yes, having Kadri would have slightly helped the least chances of winning, and in a series as tight of that as tight as that Boston Toronto series, maybe that would have shifted things in the Leafs' favor a bit more. But at the end of the day, hockey's still a very random sport, and one player isn't going to change that because, unlike in basketball, you can't play them for the entire game, and you can't make sure that your best player has the ball at all times where you want them to have it offensively. You know, you, you can't control the outcome of the game as well as you can in a sport like basketball. The other side of me says it's crazy the ripple effect that right. losing one player can have on your lineup. And, for example, you can look at Kadri in Toronto. That Taking Kadri off of that third line means that now you have to have Nylander there 
Whereas you could have had Nylander with Matthews for the entire series and had Kadri on the third line. And I feel like that would have made a huge difference because Nylander and Matthews are more than the sum of their parts when they play together. So yes, even though you're placing Kadri with a similarly talented center, Nylander at center on the third line, it's the opportunity cost of not having that Matthews-Nylander combination, which is deadly, and maybe the, a model like Dom's doesn't account for just how dominant those two are when they play together. And you can have a similar problem in San Jose, you know, missing Thornton. And Pavelski, because he didn't play that. I don't think he played that game, did he? Yeah, or even Kut- like Kucherov, for example. Him and Braden Point make magic happen together. I think they're more than the sum of their parts when they play together. Now, all of a sudden, you have Braden Point trying to carry a line by himself without Kucherov. Yeah, Braden Point's still a great player, but you're missing that magic between the two of them. So that line gets a bit worse. And then maybe all of a sudden you had to bring up someone from your third line to play on that second line. Now your third line's not as strong. You had to call up someone from your fourth line to, to move on the third line. Now the fourth line's not as strong. And now you have a, an AHL player playing on the fourth line instead. Now it's not as strong. So even though the one player doesn't cost you that much, coaching-wise, it really inhibits your ability to run the lines you want to run. And in the playoffs, when coaches get really anal over hard-matching their players to, to certain lines, especially a coach like Mike Babcock. I mean, the way that he chased matchups in that series was... I, I thought it was a big part of the reason the Leafs won a couple of their games. The, they were able to shut down the Bergeron line. But, man, he wasn't able to do what he probably would have loved to do, which is run a matthews Nylander line and have Kadri play more sheltered minutes on the third. And uh, yeah, that's that's the that's my long winded answer where I'm not really sure where I lie, because statistically it probably shouldn't matter that much when you really think about it. But at the end of the day, I think it can have impacts that maybe statistically we're not great at accounting for. Yeah, and that's kind of what I think is like it inhibits anytime you're missing a key player, whether it's San Jose with Thornton, especially Kucherov in Tampa Bay, that really inhibits your ability to make line shifts. And let's say um you're in a spot where you've got to win the game, either whether it's game three for Tampa or it's uh, game seven for Toronto. Not having those key players means you don't have the six that you want, and potentially, I know in Cooper's case, he doesn't get to run. He can't just go, okay, points lines up, okay, Tyler Johnson lines up, and just rinse, repeat. Whereas I think like Mike Babcock may not have done that, even if he had Kadri, but the ability to just go, okay, Tavares... Matthews, Tavares, Matthews, Tavares, Matthews, Kadri, Tavares, Matthews, Tavares, Matthews, Kadri. Like, it completely changes how you can run your bench. And so, even San Jose as well. I mean, Joe Thornton's not playing as much as he used to, but when you don't have that kind of passer, like, that significantly inhibits how you're game planning. Especially power play. I mean, I, th- I think of Thornton on the power play. I think of Kucherov on the power play. I mean, that power play is basically the Kucherov show. I know that Stamkos, obviously, on the left side of the ice, is a big component of it, and Braden Point does a lot with the open space that he's able to get, but you just you can't run that same kind of dynamic power play without a Kucherov there. And, and what about Victor Hedman? I mean, I know he wasn't suspended, but he was clearly not Victor Hedman in the games that he played and the games that he missed. Who takes Victor Hedman's minutes? Okay, well, Ryan McDonough's going to move up the lineup. Okay, well, who takes his minutes? Okay, I guess Mikhail Sergachev plays a few more minutes. Well, crap, now you don't have that dominant third pairing that absolutely slaughters the opposition's third and fourth lines. So 
it's a ripple effect that inhibits your ability to really do what you want to do as a team. And your roster was constructed to play a certain way where, yeah, this line takes the matchup minutes, this line does a bit better in sheltered minutes, and then this line just absolutely crushes third and fourth lines. Well, crap, now you have everybody playing a bit higher than you want them to play. And now instead of dominating each of those matchups, it's more break-even in each of those matchups. And I feel like that's what happened in the Tampa series. Things were pretty break-even at five-on-five when you look at shots and scoring chances. So, yeah, having a healthy headman and having Kucherov for the full series probably would have helped them. But, man, that was a weird series altogether. I'm not sure how you change the outcome of it because that was, I, I don't know. That, that one made me rethink what I think about hockey. Yeah, that was uh, that was definitely an interesting series. And then the last one, this is arguably the most interesting question I think we've gotten so far. What's your take on nationality biases in the NHL on both the player and in uh, the coaching management level? So are we talking about like the Don Cherry, like xenophobic, like not fan of European players, or, or what are we talking about? Well, there's not a single European coach in the NHL and Ricard Gronberg who's the Swedish national team's coach has been rumored um with the Sabres and um just kind of he's been over on this side of the pond a few times but the fact that there's not a single European coach but then you have guys like Bob Hartley and Mike Keenan and um Todd Nelson or Ted Nelson coaching over in Europe I mean and then you have your good old well Nylander's a Swede so he plays soft and anyone who actually watched him in like the last four games of the playoff series, he didn't play soft. And Finns have a reputation of always playing tough. Think of like Yuri Lettinen. But now look, they have skill. They've got the Puyi Yarvis, Sasha Barkov, Patrick Laine, the list goes Sebastian on. Sebastian Ajo, my boy. Yeah, Sebastian Ajo. And then my favorite of them all is the good Canadian kids. Well, okay. Like kind of what's your thoughts on this? Because there's definitely still this exists to uh, a very scary degree. So I don't like it when I have to hear it from reputable people like Don Cherry, who has a big platform, or I feel like there are some TV broadcasts where there's very clear bias towards a Canadian hardworking guy and a European hotshot. And I feel like those biases are very, very often not true, um, and and it bothers me. But sometimes I can understand why you get mad at a particular player who floats. And it's not just Europeans who float, you know? Like, for example, like Tyler Sagan doesn't really backtrack. Or uh, Phil Kessel doesn't really backtrack. <laughs> He's an American. But uh, I guess the best way I can put it is I don't like when I hear it in the media. And the fact that we don't have um, a European head coach in the NHL, I didn't really think about that. But that's a good point when you compare it to sports like soccer, where in the English league, you'll have like Jose Mourinho or, or, or a Dutch coach or a Spanish coach or a Brazilian coach. It doesn't really matter where you're from. They just want to hire the best coach from wherever he's from. Even if he doesn't speak the best English, that's okay. We're hiring you to be a, a, you know, a soccer coach, not a linguistics expert. So I feel like in soccer and in sports like that, there it's, it's a bit more open with the acceptance of other people from other cultures. Whereas in hockey, I feel like there's still a very, uh, I don't know, very North American bias towards the way that we go about evaluating players and coaches and, and, and management. So I think that there's going to be more Europeans in all walks of hockey, whether it's management, whether it's coaching, whether it's just drafting more players from Sweden and Finland. I think Kekalainen might be the only European GM because he came over, I believe, from Jokerit. And that was met with, like, some eyebrows raised from a significant chunk of the hockey world. And, like, he's pulled off. Look at him. He pulled off the Panarin trade. I think he brought in Bobrovsky. 
Um, he's made some great draft picks, taking Pierre-Luc Dubois over his own Finn and Jesse Puyi-Yarvi. Which looks like a great choice that was really, like, criticized Picked at apart the at the time. Yeah. Yeah, so I think the fact that there's, I think, only one European GM and zero head coaches, like, there's definitely a bias towards, first of all, the spin cycle of rinse-repeat on NHL head coaches is there. But I just think that the fact that no one wants to go out and get a guy like Ricard Gronberg, I mean, pretty startling, don't you think? Like, the guys had success. I mean, look at the Swedish national program. Or I think, I mean, that you'll, you'll probably agree with this too, like the lack of women in the sport is really frustrating too, but I, I guess that's a, that might be another conversation for another day. I don't know if it is. I mean, the lack of, uh, like, I don't know what the right word is, visible minorities, like the fact that it's just a bunch of old white dudes in, in management and coaching. and. But it's not even just like, like most European coaches, let's say, are old white dudes too. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of old white dudes living in Europe. I just think that for whatever reason, um, and it it's maybe it's not even done on purpose, but it's like the Europeans still have this. Oh, they're soft, or like the Russians have this. Uh, there are some pretty hard nosed Russians in the NHL right now. Um, Alex Ovechkin being one of them. Yes, he's a superstar, but he would also run you through the end glass and throw you into the eighth row if he had to. Um, I wish Nikita Zaitsev was more of a hot shot skilled player. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair, but I think like having a coach, like a team would do well to hire Ricard Gronberg. Look at what he's done and the development. Like the Swedes are always in it come World Championship time. He has no issues getting players to play for him. I think that it's the problem is is the NHL team, whichever one, doesn't want to be the first one to kind of step out and say, okay, we're gonna do something different. And so the biases in terms of like good Canadian kids. Like, I'm sorry, but there are soft Canadian playing in the NHL right now. Like, they're not all just these. Like, you can't tell me for one second that Miko Koivu is not a hard-nosed playing guy. Like, the guy is ridiculous. Yeah, and I think, was it Jim Benning who had that quote? Was it last year about uh, that we need players with European skill and North American heart? And I was just like, oh. And that's frustrating because even if other GMs won't admit it, I feel like that's a bias that exists in a lot of, uh, like, in the, in the way that a lot of us look at the sport. And I think it needs to change. And I'm, I'm hoping it does. It's like we need the guy from Saskatchewan. Okay, well, like, Wendell Clark doesn't ex- That type of player doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, I don't know. Tom Wilson, is he the modern day Wendell Clark? I don't know. Mm, I, but, Wendell Clark is way more dirtier than a lot of Leafs fans will want to admit. But. Oh yes, <laughs> but that, like that Bruce Bell hit. Oh my god, he like jumped three feet in the air. So I, I guess what we're getting at here is that we'd like to see less discrimination in the NHL, just more uh, outside the box ideas. Whether it's you know get bringing in a European coach, uh, bringing in more women both off the ice on the ice, and just. I don't know, making it less of a of an old white boys club, you know? Like, that's, that's just kind of the, the 200 hockey men uh, stereotype. I'd like to see us more progressive in the way that we go about hiring new people. So, And how we view even the players. So, like, not all Swedes are soft and not all Finns are hard-nosed and not all Canadians are good Canadian kids. Like, Evander Kane... I would probably argue is not a good Canadian kid. Uh, Brad Marchand on the ice, at least. Uh, not for my money. Yeah, like, he <laughs> plays, he's got that skill, but good God, he does some other stuff. Like, I don't... If Could you imagine if somebody of European descent 
pulled the licking nonsense that Brad Marchand did, the uproar that the likes of Mike Milbury and those folk would, would have to say. Could you imagine what, what would be all over Twitter? Or it's funny, like, talk about, like, Europeans and diving and Canadians are, like, super tough and whatnot. It's like, well, Mike Smith's Canadian, so... <laughs> yeah. Like, the whole... That's a great point, is that, like, oh, only, like, Europeans dive. I've for sure seen that that's not the case. Nazem Kadri was born in London, Ontario? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Exactly. We should get out of here before we just trash more players. I feel bad. I just <laughs> no, but there is. There's uh, the, the point. There is. There's absolutely a, a nationality bias, and I, I think it has actually gotten better in terms of how players are viewed because now you're seeing some more level-headed takes, with the exception of maybe William Nylander. Um, well, that's going to be a long ride this offseason. I'm looking forward to it. Oh Lord, have mercy! A God forbid he has a good World Championship. My goodness, people will lose their minds. But I think that. There does need to be more um, diversity in, in management. Maybe bring over some Swedes because they're clearly developing good players. Well, why not have a Swedish development coach or a Finnish development coach? If you look at draft inefficiencies, it's basically just draft more Europeans. And the big one for me is like a lot of Swedes, especially whether you played a handful of games in the SHL or even if you're doing really well in their junior league, those players go on to have success much more often than you would think and much more often than they're being drafted like they're being anticipated as oh this guy's a sixth or seventh round prospect when relative to his peers he should probably be in the second or third round so you need to draft more Swedes you need to draft more Finns more Russians because these players are good and if they're developing to be this good maybe we should be looking at bringing in more coaches from overseas because they're teaching them the game in a, in a very modern progressive way you look at the way that Swedish defensemen move the puck much better than a lot of uh, North American puck movers, at least. So, oh, much better. When you, I like you have Eric Carlson, Victor Hedman. I don't know if you saw what John Klingberg did in Game Three, but that was one of the best zone exits I've ever seen. I'm a big fan of this Rasmus Sandin kid. You know. <laughs> oh, yes, he looks terrific. All right, we should get out of here before we gush over more Swedes. But yeah, let's let's uh, let's bring more. Let's have different ideas come into this sport. I, I don't want uh, you know, any avenue to be cut off, whether it's race, gender, ethnicity, uh, you know, sexual orientation. Let's bring everybody in who has good ideas. You know, if you got good ideas, you got good ideas. If you can play, you can play. So that's what I'd like to see more of. Exactly. All righty. Well, we'll get out of here, and uh, we'll be back on our regular schedule, a.k.a. the next podcast will likely be out on Monday. Yeah, so sorry for the hiatus, but there should be a lot to talk about with uh, the playoffs going on right now. And I'll find my uh, best way to include some Pascal Siakam references into uh, hockey. So I got to do what I got to do. Got to give the people what they want. All right, sounds good. I'm not sure if anyone knows who Pascal Siakam is. If they don't, I'm upset. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people who have no idea who that is. People are like, wait, I'm unsubscribing. <laughs> He's like the Raptors' best player, not in Kawhi Leonard. He's really, really good. Alrighty, well, let's get out of here. We will chat soon. Sounds good. See you next week, Rachel. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.